0: This is KMTT. The week begins this uh, winter, Tavshin Ayn, with a shiur by Harav Yamin a series, weekly series, on a modern responsa of the 20th century more or less, both the individual and the and the topic, Harav Yamin When I was growing up in America, let's talk about the years, the uh, mid-50s, 60s, the Rosh Hashiva of America in the Haredi world, par excellence, was Rabbi Kutner. At the same time, the Posei Kador in America, the person whose Psaq really affected the entire Jewish community of the United States of America, was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. In fact, both of them, Rebbarun Cutler and Reb Moshe Feinstein, dealt with both areas, obviously. Whereas Rebbarun Cutler was known as the Rosh Hashiva, he also was involved in P'sak, and fairly recently, two of two volumes of Chuvas of Rebbarun appeared, Mishnahs of On the other hand, Reb Feinstein. Besides being the Posek Kadar, was actually a Rosh Hashiva. He was the Rosh Hashiva of Mesivta Tafarus Rishalayim, and he wrote many Svarim, uh, one, one Shas called Dibros Moshe. But in a certain sense, their reputation of Rebarin as being a Rosh Hashiva and Reb Moshe as a Posek was well deserved because the, the Shiurim of Rabbaran Kuttler are really what made him famous. The, excitement, the Bren of the shiur of Rebbein Kadar. I had the privilege of hearing two shiur from him when I was in Yeshiva High School in RJJ in the uh, mid-50s. Rebbein had a custom of coming there once a year to give a, a shiur. And I remember the excitement in the Bes Medrash and specifically the Rashi Yeshivas, the Ramim who really made an effort to come to the shir and pay attention and, and, and grasp what Rebarin was saying. It frankly was above the the head, the level of most of the yeshiva students, but it was probably more geared to the Ramim, who some of them were Talmidim of Rebarin in the past. And Reb, Reb, the, the swarm of Chuvos of Rebarin, to my mind, are not as well known. Similarly, Reb Moshe finds in Ziggurus, Moshe Moshe's found In so many houses, I can only imagine how many sets were printed. But the Svarim Dibros Moshe are not that prevalent, and I don't think are a major factor in the yeshiva world today. But it's interesting to see how the reputation of the people was relegated to one particular area. I once heard a comment that someone mentioned about the comparison between Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Soloveitchik, whereas Rav Moshe Feinstein was known as the Poseik. But in, and Rav Saleveitchik was known as a Magachira, yes, he used to call himself a Malamed all the time. And yet the nicknames they had, their students called him by different names. Like, all the students of Rav Saleveitchik called him the Rav, when actually he was not the Rav in terms of the Posek of the Rav, but rather the Rosh Hashiva. And Rav Moshe's Tommy, them all called him the Rosh Shiva, whereas really he was considered the Posek. So the areas of the Gedolim were in all, area, all different areas of learning, and Rebaran Cutler actually gave some very important psakim, and very serious questions were addressed, addressed to him, part of which we have in those volumes that I mentioned before in Mishnas Rebaran. Although Rebaran Cutler's uh, name is very well known and his reputation is well known, I still will give you a brief introduction to the uh, life of Rebaran, he was born into a rabbinic family in 1892. He received most of his early education from his father, and then as a young Eloi, he was brought to various yeshivas. It was known in Slabatka that he was considered there as an Ilui. and when he used to give Chaburus there, it was a major occasion of the kila uh, of the Lamb Torah, to go to hear a Chabura from Rebarin Cutler. This was uh, written up in Making of a Gadol, how Rebarin was proud of the fact that so many people came to hear him when he gave the Chabura in Slobodka. He married the daughter of Eben Zalman Melzer, the author of the Evan Hazel, the Rosh Hashiva of Slutsk, And then he became the uh, Rosh Yeshiva when the Yeshiva moved to Kletzk. And he was known as the Kletzka Rosh Yeshiva. He was there for many years. And, of course, during the war, he escaped. He went to Japan. And eventually, he wound up in the United States of America, where he founded the Yeshiva in Lakewood. He chose specifically a town which was considered a sleepy type of town, in New Jersey, which did not have many distractions. Did not he did not want to build his yeshiva in the center of New York, where there are many, many events going on, things happening, but he built his yeshiva in Lakewood and he insisted this yeshiva be built as only a base Medrash, nothing to do with any anything else but net Torah. And he was very successful in building this yeshiva. In the Encyclopedia Judaica, they wrote that at the time that Rebaran Cutler was Nifter, they had 250 students. Now, it's really interesting. At that time, that was almost unheard of to have such a big yeshiva in the United States of America. 62 students in... 250 students in 1962. Today, we would simply almost not believe such a number... Because today, Lakewood is one of the greatest yeshivas in the world with thousands and thousands of students, branches and branches of the yeshiva within Lakewood, different built Batei Medrash, as well as, as well as all kinds of Batei Medrash and Kolim that they set up all around the United States and in Israel as well. So his dream of building the yeshiva was very successful. It was taken over at, when Rabban was Nifter in 1962 by his son, Reb and when he was Nifter, so his sons, the grandson, the grandchildren of, of, of Byron Cutler now are among the Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva of Lakewood. Besides being a, known as a great Maggotshir and a great Rosh Yeshiva, a genius in Torah, Baron was very active in many organizations. He was the, one of the founders of the Chinuch Hatzmoy in Israel. He was very active in the Varatsala after the after the war, and he was one of the leaders of the Aguda. He was officially called also the Rosh Hashiva of Eitz Chaim when his father-in-law Rebbe Sezalman was nifter. the Baron became the official Rosh Hashivah. and in the in the early years of being Rosh Hashiva, he did used to come to Eretz Israel every so often, and he gave a shir, which was again a major event in the life of. Uh, Torah in Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim specifically. As I mentioned, he was Nifter in 1962. I remember his Levaya very well on the Lower East Side. Tons and tons of people were there, and uh, his influence was felt until this very day. We'll discuss a few of the tshuvahs that appeared in the Mishnas Rebarim. In the second volume, he has a a tshuva that I I, I wanted to bring to your attention because of his understanding of the situation of America in those years. The question was asked him in 1933 about a a woman who was an aguna, a woman who was married, but she had no information about her husband. The letter came from Hartford. Perhaps the whole incident happened in Hartford, Connecticut. And we have to remember what Hartford, Connecticut, or any other Jewish community, at least outside New York, looked like in 1933. Two people signed a letter. Two Jewish people signed a letter that they knew that the husband had passed away. At first glance, you don't seem to understand what the question is. If people wrote a letter that someone is, is dead... Is that acceptable in a court of an abesdin to be Matir to allow those women to be remarried? Is that the entire question? The baron begins by questioning the validity of the witnesses in this particular letter. On one hand, he seems to have taken a very strong position analyzing the situation of the community. On the other hand, there is a great limitschus in this approach as well. He wrote that unfortunately we know that because of financial difficulties in making a living most of the people in that community are not Shamir Shabbos. And we, ha- we have a, a din in Shulchan Aruch, Eben that a person whose Michal Shabbos is invalidated as a witness for Agunos. So here the Eidim are presumably Pasol Now, in general, when a person comes to court and testifies, how do we know that he's kashal And the answer, of course, is there's a Chazaka. Every person has a cheskas Kashus. Every single person was born with a Cheskaz Kashus. He has a cheskas Haguf. Exactly what that Chazaka is, is a very interesting Lamedeshe point that uh, when you learn Ksubis, you, you see a whole uh, discussion about it. But everybody has a Cheskashos. Ches- On the other hand, <laughs> we have a Rove here. The Rove of the people, unfortunately, <coughs> are Mechal Shabis. When we have a conflict between Rove and Chazaka, so Rove wins. So the Rove here are Mechal Shabis. And this person is Parishman rove. So at first glance, it seems that you cannot accept his testimony. Rebarin discussed a few points about this issue. One, the fact that there is a rove is true, but would that affect any individual that comes and without knowing anything about him, would that affect his Cheskos ches Kashos? And he goes on to a, a long discussion, uh, obviously a brilliant discussion, quoting many sources, that in our case, the chazaka, that a person is a kosher aid, would work, even though they are, the rove is Michal Shabbos, and he quotes a din from Avadim, roim who are kosher for Eidos Isha, even though the rove of those people are puzzled, but nevertheless, the individual person who comes is kosher, the Eidos, and the bottom line is, he permitted such a case. He also felt that we could discuss another lambdash question that I'll just mention. This is a rov hatoli b'maseh, a rov that depends upon a certain action, namely chilo shabbos. And we say that such a rov is considered a rov in halacha. Again, a brilliant discussion of Rishonim to show that perhaps we can use this as another reason to, be, to, to allow it that a rov shetoli b'mas is not considered a rov, according to biblical law, and therefore it, only, it at most would be Apostle the Rabbana, and in this case you could be Matir. However, there were two more issues that were raised in this particular tshuva. One issue was in the letter that was sent to inform the woman that her husband was die, Died. besides the two Jewish witnesses, there was a non-Jewish witness. And here we have another problem because there's a principle in halacha, nim echad me'am krav v'pasol, and Batela. If you have a group of people coming together as edim, and one of them is found pasl the entire group is considered pasl The Mishnah and Makos uh, elaborated upon there in the, be- the end of the first perek, nim echad me'am krav the edus is betela. So here, at first glance, the edus should be batel. Rebbein rebuffed that argument by two different arguments. One, in Eidos, and when we say Nimzah echem Emkav that means if there's an eight puzzle. For example, three people signed, two people that are kosher, and the third person is a brother of the uh, litigant. So in such a case, you would say Nimzah Echam or for example, two people are kashar, and the third is a uh, non-gazlan. So then you would say the whole is batal. That's because they're an eight puzzle. Is a guy considered an aid puzzle, or is not considered an aid at all? When a guy signs a document, do we look at it as well? It is an it is an aid, but the aid is puzzle. Do we look at it as scribbling? It's just a, it's not worth anything. It's just a, 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 a almost a figment of your imagination. He can't be an aid at all. He's not an aid puzzle at all. So in which case, Mem imkav puzzle would not apply. Also, Rebain felt that perhaps. This uh, document that was let, written to uh, that, to inform the woman that her husband was has passed away is not really a din of a star. It's not really a din of edus. It's just something in, in writing, and we can allow that to be used by Besden to be mati of the woman, but it doesn't necessarily have the din of edus. If that's true, then the din of nimtsechim would not apply at all. So Rabin rejected the argument that maybe we should passel this edus because of the the signature of the guy. The last point that I wanted to mention because again I feel this is really remarkable to see Rebar's understanding and his use of this this understanding of the life in America at the time. He said besides all the above, there's another reason to be making. Why? Because there was another woman named Mrs. Finkel, who received a letter from an old aunt, and in that letter, it also said that this person had passed away. Now, this woman Reb felt certainly should be, could be believed. We believe Eidos Isha to to be allowing Aguna to remarry Eidos Isha sufficient, and this is Eidos Isha. She wrote the letter that the man died. It's acceptable. Why is this different than the original cases? In the original cases, we wrote that Reb wrote, that uh, the average person in America is Michal Shabbos. So we had to have this whole discussion whether you could really trust him, even though we didn't know if he was uh, Shomer Shabbos. Did the Cheskashas apply? Did not apply? In the case of the woman, this elderly aunt of uh, Mrs. whoever, Mrs. Finkel, that um, why should we believe her? Isn't she also Michal Shabbos? And here, a baron, as I said, in his Limut on the, on the jury of America, the baron said, based on his original understanding, that the people in America are all Michal Shabbos. But he didn't think they were Michal Shabbos because they were terrible people, because they didn't believe in God. But he thought, he assessed the situation to be mitir das because of livelihoods, because they had to earn a living. In those days, it was very difficult to earn a living. If a person was Shema Shabbos, one of the mottos of the hiring places were, if you don't come on Saturday, you don't come on Monday. People had to work on Shabbos. So he said, this would only apply to the younger crowd, to the people who went to work. But this was an Isha's kingnat. This was an old aunt. And this aunt had no business. She was not involved in any business undertaking. She was not. She did not work. And she was an old lady. So this person is not chashon at all, even though the most of the people in Hartford were probably mechaleh Shabbos, but they were mechaleh Shabbos because of though Anybody who's not involved in Parnassa has still a cheskoskashos. I thought the understanding of what life was like in Hartford at that time is really quite remarkable. Another tshuva that I'd like to discuss. Also because it shows about life in America and a tshuva that we'll that find other people have related to the same issue. In the same volume of Mishnah Srebaron, Simon Ayin Aleph. The question was asked in 1952 if teachers could go on strike. Teachers in the yeshiva were known in America that they received very low wages. Many people not only received low wages, but the yeshivas didn't pay. Very often they missed the date, they paid late. And I think this was very, very common in in, in America, that the teaching conditions, the economic conditions of teachers were rather poor, and uh, striking was one of the uh, few options that teachers felt that they had. So the question had been asked to a baron in 1952, if teachers could go on strike. The first issue that would be raised would be Gemaras all over that say that a po'el, a worker, can quit whenever he feels like. A person wants to stop working, he can always stop working. So what seems to be the question? If he could strike, he can just stop working. The problem, of course, is the Gemara says that the right to quit work only applies to a work that quickly you can find other workers, work that will, a stoppage of work will not damage anyone at all. But in the phrase of the Gemara and dover Ha'aved, and something that will cause a loss, then in, you're not allowed to stop work. You're considered then like a Mazik, and you can't stop work. Rebaran had to assess the situation. Is stopping work teaching considered dover Ha'aved? And of course, as you would imagine, Rebbein goes on to discuss the importance of teaching Torah, the importance of learning Torah, and it's obvious to him that this is considered davar avet. No matter what happens, you can never make up the lost time. People think, "Well, I didn't learn today; I'll learn double tomorrow." You can always learn double tomorrow. That doesn't stop the fact that today you could have learned whatever you 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 could have, you did or didn't is not going to be re- repaid by tomorrow. So, for sure, it's a davar ha'avid. But then, another question came up. In America, the right to strike is granted by law. And the right to strike in America applies even to what the halacha considers davar ha'avid. But America, the laws of America, say that you can strike even a davar ha'avid. So, would you assume that dinah demarchusa might apply to this type of strike? And here, a baron argued that Dina de Machusa would only work in dini Mamanos. But in Dine Isuim, Dina de Machusa has no effect. The government has a right on taxes and money affairs, but they cannot say anything about Isra things that are permitted and not permitted. And here, it's a question of Isra You're stopping people from learning. So therefore, he felt that you're not allowed to go and strike, and Dina de Machusa would not apply. Then, I found a point that in a, a sense, surprised me. Baron raised the issue, would this be different for the teachers of, of Limude Kodesh or Limude La Limude Kodesh, I can understand that Rebarin would think it's a of Ha'avet. People, students won't learn the same way they would if they had their Rebis, their teachers, and therefore it's a of Ha'avet, but Limude So they won't go to English classes. In fact, if you don't go to English classes, maybe you'll learn more Torah. So, my instinctive reaction would have been that Rabbaran would say this only applies to Limited Kodesh, but not to Limited Chol. To my surprise, Rabbaran said it applies to teachers of Limited Chol as well. Because he said that somehow I, I, I will only you know use the actual text without trying to read more into it than it really says. He said, This is also a spiritual issue. And this is also a davar HaAved because of education and probably supervision of the students. And he said, because we know the dangers involved in Batala and students just wandering around and going into the streets, this is considered to him have There's a spiritual loss which cannot be repaid. So, he also added that we want them to finish their limud echol. It's important for us that they should study their limud echol in order to fulfill the regulations that are required, and then they can go back to learning Torah on a full-time basis. Now, as I mentioned before, this question came up in many uh, sfarim because it was common in America at that time. Rav Feinstein was asked the same question, and Ramosha actually added a different type of argument to forbid striking. And he said there that really teachers, especially of Limud Kodesh, really should not teach at all for remuneration. The Gemara says Maani b'china nami You really should learn. You really should teach Torah for free. What's the hetar to learn, to teach Torah and get paid for it? And the Gemara says it's called It's the It's the money that you could have earned by working someplace else. So that's the only reason you're allowed to take a salary at all. So if you're going to stop working and you don't get a salary from anybody, then you really have to teach b'china. So how could he possibly imagine that you can go and strike? If you're in strike, then you have to teach. Nevertheless, although, according to the Din, both Reb and Reb Moshe wrote separate shuvos where they explained that halachically speaking, teachers' strikes are forbidden, they both added some words of warning. Reb wrote that the teachers have a right to appeal to a Torah. the teachers who teach under poor conditions and are unhappy cannot devote themselves totally to education. He strongly encouraged the boards of the yeshivas, the people that are in charge of the financial arrangements of the yeshiva, to deal with the complaints of the of the teachers, come to terms with them and enable them to make a living so that they can really devote themselves to Torah as much as possible. He warned that nobody should take advantage of his psaq and say, well, the teachers can't strike anyway, so I don't have to treat them well. And he really, really emphasized that teachers should be treated with respect and paid a decent wage on time. Reb Moshe perhaps went a step further and he said, that even though I said that striking is forbidden, perhaps I will use a halachic principle here of Aisla la soz efei ife Sometimes the greater good is served if a person abrogates some detail, some law of the Torah. Of course, this is a very dangerous concept. When can you uh, apply it, and by and by whom it can it be applied? Rab Moshe suggested that if teachers would go and strike for a day or two, the situation would obviously be unbearable to everyone. And therefore, it would really force the people in charge to deal with the teachers in a more uh, proper manner, deal with their legitimate demands seriously. And, And therefore, he felt, since a strike could not last very long, Perhaps we could allow the teachers to strike because of Eitla The last tshuva that I'd like to deal with tonight, today, of Rabban Cutler, was found in the first volume of tshuvas, Simon Mem Zayin. The question was asked of, by Ashul, or representatives of Ashul, That was an Orthodox shul and had a mechitza. The younger generation wanted to change the nature of the shul and to remove the mechitza. At first glance, you don't understand at all why Rev. Aaron would even discuss this issue. It's obvious to everyone who considers himself to be an Orthodox Jew that a shul must have a machitza. To go into all the sources, the pros and cons, it's almost irrelevant because it's such an obvious issue. In fact, in America, the issue was so severe because of different organizations that people did want to remove the, the machitza that a book did appear, a famous book called Sanctity of the Synagogue, where they brought many, many opinions of all the gedolim, but no one ever raise the possibility that we can live without a mechitza, that you can daven without a mechitza and a shul. It, on a temporary situation, on a one-time basis, with all kinds of arguments, people could argue. But certainly, no one had, was matir such a question. So, why did Rabaran relate to the issue at all? Apparently, A, he was asked, and he replied to what he was asked. B. It was such an important issue in America that although we think it's very obvious, nevertheless the Gdolim felt they had to emphasize how important how important the Mechitza is. The first part of the Chuva obviously discusses, but in brief, the importance of having a Mechitza and shul, why it's considered a tikkun gadol, is it daraisa, drabanan, etc., etc. And Rebarin mentioned there that I'm i not going to speak, uh, to write a lengthy essay about this. It's well known. And nobody, you know, would ever consider the fact that you can build a shul without a mechitza. He did quote something that I felt rather interesting, that he said, even in the days of the Chassam Sofer, and others, when changes were made in the shul. In those days, the changes that were made included the fact that they wanted to bring an organ into the shul, some of the services wanted, they wanted some of the service to be translated into the native language, and of course the Chassam Sofer uh, fought tooth and nail against such an issue with his famous proclamation of Khadash HaSem and anything new is forbidden by Jewish law. Reb said, but he, at that time, no one even raised the issue of not not having a machitza. He said there were changes that were suggested originally, but no one ever raised the possibility of removing the machitza from the shul, it was such an obvious criteria for having an orthodox shul. And then he went on to explain that even if you won't take my entire argument about the mechitza, but in this particular case, where you're canceling the custom of the shul, you cannot uh, break minhagim. But then he added two more points that I felt were very ingenious in this particular case. He said, the people that originally built the shul, that originally contributed to the shul, obviously gave money to build a shul in which people can daven, in which people, Orthodox Jews, would feel comfortable. Now, inasmuch as the psak of the Chassam Sofer and others was that you're not allowed to even step foot to daven in a shul which it does not conform to to old Jewish practice. Therefore, automatically, this shul would be prohibited to Orthodox Jews. In effect, you're stealing the money of the people that gave the money originally. They gave the money with a certain idea in mind. And if you take that money and deviate from what they wanted you to do, that's, in a sense, gazela. He also added that the people who inherited the, the their places in the shul, it was obviously a long time Orthodox shul, and the younger generation wanted to take over and make it into what we would call today a conservative reform shul. So he said there would be a lack of kibbut av in such a situation. It would also be the lack of the concept of mitzvah lekayim divrei ames. There's a mitzvah to obey the wishes of the dead people, and therefore he added monetary reasons why this particular case you could not remove the Mechitza. Of course, that argument was only advanced in this particular case. The other arguments would apply even to building a shul, a new a new synagogue, where, of course, the issue of the Mechitza was unfortunately Raised in America, in a sense we could call it lowered in America, the machitza was lowered, the issue was raised, but the importance of a machitza was never questioned by Orthodox Jews. The tshuva of, of Baron Cutler was just to emphasize, A, how important the machitza is, and how in this particular case, for sure, for you were not allowed to change from the original design of the shul.